Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. From KQED. KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. This is Michael Krasny. Coming up on Forum, screenwriter, producer, and director Aaron Sorkin. He made The West Wing and wrote A Few Good Men and The Social Network, which earned him an Academy Award. I spoke with him yesterday about his career and his latest film, The Trial of the Chicago 7, which is now airing on Netflix. But first, we talk movies and more with Ann Lai, executive director of SF Film, which presents the San Francisco International Film Festival. And since this show was previously recorded, we won't be taking your live calls and emails. That's next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Later in this hour, we're going to bring you my recent interview with Academy Award-winning screenwriter Aaron Sorkin. But first, we're joined by Ann Lai, executive director of SF Film, presenter of the San Francisco International Film Festival, and took over SF Film in March, right before, in her words, the world started imploding. She had spent the previous 12 years at Sundance Institute, where she was focused on developing emerging talent, including producers, screenwriters, and directors. And she joins us now to talk about SF Film's awards night this week, diversity in film, as well as the current state of cinema in the Bay Area and beyond. And welcome, Ann Lai. Thanks for having me. Delighted to have you. And let's talk first about uh, what happened right away with this, uh, what you described as the world started imploding. You came here on March 11th and uh, yeah, things that hit. Was- That was the week. I mean, obviously, we were aware of what was going on in the world, but it was starting to hit sort of more popular culture, so to speak. I think that was the week that the NBA canceled the rest of their season. I think that was the week that Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson, you know, um, announced that they were they were both uh, they were both sick with with COVID. And so I came in. had a chance to go to the office, meet staff. And then on the third day of my job, we had an emergency board meeting to cancel our festival, which is the first time that's ever happened in the 63 year history of the organization. So it was really, really devastating, I think just on an emotional level for, for, for our community and certainly for the staff who had worked so hard um, you know, to put this annual event together. And to the filmmakers to not be able to show these these films that they'd spent years making. And then um, a, a couple of days later, we moved into shelter in place. So that obviously is something that everyone has adjusted to. And, and um, I think we're all better at it now. But it was it was it was it was a bit shocking, I think, for everyone, uh, including me. I think shocking is the operative word. It's uh, it was supposed to open. Things were supposed to open on April 8th. So you were right on the hinge of or on the cusp of yeah. everything. And I want to ask you a question that I know was put to you by the San Francisco Chronicle, was put to really all the arts leaders, and they were asked a couple questions, the damage from the pandemic and what it means for the future. 
Yeah, I mean, it's 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 inevitable that that arts um, and nonprofits are going to to suffer. You know, we are we are designed to really um, be able to survive and do our work off of the generosity of whether it's corporations and sponsors and and individual donors and foundations. And you know, what I will say is that. Our, our existing donors and sponsors and membership base and uh, foundations have been incredibly uh, generous and nimble and doing their best to keep uh, everyone afloat and certainly made a huge impact for us. Um, you know, the, the, the most obvious impact is the financial. You know, suddenly the, the things that you count on to create revenue, to generate the attention, to sort of sell tickets to events and to films suddenly goes away. And that's probably been, you know, the, the financial thing has been the hardest thing. What I would also say is that it then becomes about how do you reinvent yourself when, for example, a festival is defined by gathering together. So if you can't do that, what does that look like? So a lot of the work over the year has been trying to think a little bit outside the box, obviously moving to a virtual space. We've all become experts at Zoom um, and, and trying, to, trying to create as much intimacy, as much of a community as possible in a platform that, that we had no experience in. I think a lot of people didn't have experience in. Um, that has been sort of the name of the game you know, this year. And I think I think very positively about the future. I think that human nature wants to be around each other. You know, to me, film remains a very critical art form, a critical way to understand each other, to connect with each other. That doesn't go anywhere. Um, and that as soon as things are possible, we will shift. We'll, we'll still stay in the virtual space, but we'll shift back into what looks a little bit more normal in the coming months and year as, as things begin to loosen up. But it's it's been it's been challenging. It's been challenging. I'm certain it has been challenging. And lie with us, executive director of SF Film. Uh, but you're set to have this rewards night, which is a benefit for year-round programs, and that sounds really pretty exciting. And it sounds like a good fundraiser. It is. It is our annual fundraiser. It's a really beautiful moment to bring together a community of supporters and film industry and filmmakers to, to celebrate some notable artists of the year. Um, and more importantly, it's, its purpose is really to raise funds to support our year-round work. So in addition to our exhibition and our festival, the things that are most visible and well-known about our work, we have two other programs that are um, that are sort of vital to our year-round work. One of them is our education program, which uh, focuses on students and families, uh, students kindergarten through college, uh, through screenings, through workshops, through conversation with artists to help develop media literacy, to build cultural awareness, and to really build um, the beginning of a lifelong appreciation of, of cinema and of storytelling. So we have multiple different events throughout the year. They've all shifted to online, but uh, bringing filmmakers into a classroom. We had a, a camp, an annual summer camp that we did virtually this summer. And we're able to have 40 different students join that. Um, and and the, the students were making short films for the first time and, and connecting with each other uh, on that platform. So it's, it's a program that has been uh, around in some form or another for about, it's going to be our 30th anniversary next year. So it has been a really um, wonderful part of the organization for many years and, and is one that we feel really strongly about. Well, the educational outreach program, I believe, is uh, hits about 15,000 students a year. Is that going to continue to be the fact? 
That's what we're going to aim for. It's been a little bit different. And I think all of us are trying to understand what is it, what does, what does viewership and engagement look like in a virtual platform? Um, what does appointment sort of viewing, you know, how does that feel? And when students are all um, doing classroom remotely, how much, where does fatigue kick, kick, uh, kick, kick in? Where does that become sort of a challenge of spending a little bit more time on Zoom? So we've been making sort of adjustments to that, but you know, 15,000 students is what we, and families and teachers are, are, part, of, uh, are part of our goal of remaining um, to be a part of their, uh, a part of the interaction that we can do throughout the year. We're talking uh, again with Ann Lai, and Ann Lai is executive director of SF Film, and uh, I believe the first director um, who's a woman, the first director uh, who's Asian American. Uh, I think I have that right on both scores, uh, on both counts. Uh, let's 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 talk about your background, and let's talk about what you bring to this. A lot of experience from Sundance. I know you work with uh, creative producing there. You worked with. Um, Sundance Institute, but also Sundance Film Festival, running the Screenwriters Lab. Um, imagine you must have run in a lot to our friend Robert Redford. Um, what, what do you bring here in terms of, I, I think in one interview you said, I bring freshness, and that's good, and that's indeed probably the case. But what else do you feel in terms of your vision is particular or d distinctive? Sure. I mean, I, you know, as you mentioned, I spent um, all of my years at Sundance really focusing on artist development. And what that is, is really trying to cultivate filmmakers um, and, and help them find the path to basically express their own voice, express their own perspective. We have an artist development program here at SF Film. And that was one of the things that I was attracted to, this idea that there's like multiple ways that this organization is able to, to be part of uh, an ecosystem of independent filmmaking, of filmmaking. You know, to me, one of the things that's most exciting about the work that we get to do, that I got to do for many years at Sundance, but that I get to do here with a really tremendous staff is trying to find those voices, trying to find um, the ways in which you might be able to support them. That could be a grant, that could be a residency. We have a film house residency in Chinatown that may be simply being able to have a conversation and encourage someone to pursue making something. They may not end up being a director and that's absolutely okay, but what they might do is find that they have a way of telling a story that is unique to them and also represents a perspective that, that, that isn't there. Um, you know, I think one of the things that's always most exciting and I think is particularly exciting in San Francisco, in the Bay Area, you look around and the, the range of, of different voices, cultural backgrounds, socio, socioeconomic you know, conditions, all of that, everyone has something that they want to share as a story, as an anecdote, as a perspective. And to me, what we can do through sharing films, through learning how you know, what that skill is, what that craft is, and thinking about it critically can really help anyone tell the stories of themselves and about themselves better. And that to me is sort of the exciting thing that the, the accessibility of what a film can be can have multiple meanings for whoever is on the, the audience side of it, whoever is on the receiving end of that. And if we have a way through SF Film to create the opportunity for audiences, but also creating the opportunity for who are the makers, who are the ones being able to share their story. Um, those, the idea of sort of finding the balance of that and being able to be a touch point in some way, shape or form so that work can come out into the world. That's the thing that's exciting. That's the thing I get most excited about. Um, 
And all of that really comes from a place of, you know, we aren't here to produce films, to finance films, to distribute films, but we can play a really vital role in all of the pieces and all of the parts of that ecosystem. And I think at this moment, and in this particular, you know, year or moment that we were all going through, and certainly the film industry is going through, what we can provide is more critical than ever. Um, you know, we gave $795,000 in granting to film to filmmakers and to films this year. And that is going to allow them to move forward and create a piece of work that that will have an impact. Um, it might be small, it might be large. And that's, you know, the goal is not always as large as possible. It's about is it hitting the people that you want it to. Um, so that I don't know that that's necessarily articulating a vision. I think it's probably articulating sort of my my excitement about what the opportunity is. Um, well, you've certainly been do. emphasizing um, a broader perspective, a range of voices, uh, not only filmmakers and storytellers of color, but those in the disabled community, immigrants. Uh, you have mentioned how many times you would like to have the range of voices and perspectives and how important it is for filmmaking and the future of filmmaking. What's the catalyst for you? I think there's a, a couple of touch points. The main one is that the opportunity is there, that someone who doesn't necessarily see anyone in their life that might be creating film work, that they feel that they're being invited. They feel that they have an access point to, to apply and maybe be part of a camp, maybe be part of a grant, maybe be part of a program, and we can provide the infrastructure for that. I think the second thing is the more work that we can support that is in the pipeline, so to speak, that does look like someone or represent a community or represent a point of view that isn't typical out in the world that will have huge meaning that that made an impact on me when I was you know when I was a kid and watching movies and so the more that we can do of that I think we will see the rewards of that um, very quickly thank you for joining us a pleasure thank to you have so you. much that's Anne Lai and again she is head of SF film I'm Michael Krasny Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. The West Wing, The Social Network, A Few Good Men, those are just a few of the iconic series and films created and or written by my next guest, Academy Award-winning screenwriter, director, producer, and playwright Aaron Sorkin. His latest film is The Trial of the Chicago 7, which is now available on Netflix, and he is being honored this week by the SF Film presenter of the San Francisco International Film Festival with its Canbar Award, which acknowledges the critical importance that storytelling plays in the creation of outstanding films. And he joins me. And welcome, Aaron Sorkin. Uh, it's great to be here. Thank you. Great to have you. And congratulations on the Canbar Award, which will be presented to you uh, actually later on this evening, I believe, though it won't be available for people to see until later on, presented to you by Sasha Baron Cohen, who plays Abby Hoffman in the trial yes, of the Chicago uh, 7. Uh, I'm, yeah, you know, I'm very honored by the award. Uh, I'm grateful to Sasha for presenting it. and uh, Very grateful to SF Film. 
Well, and we're grateful to have you with us. Uh, your work has uh, certainly stood the test of time, and you have done an extraordinary array of uh, really versatile uh, canon of work, if I can call it that. I want to begin by talking about a general notion that I'd like to have your thoughts on, and that is uh, you've done films about three people who are very well known to Bay Area listeners and were listened to beyond the Bay Area, but I'm thinking, of course, of Steve Jobs. You did a film <clears throat> about him that Danny Boyle directed and also about Mark Zuckerberg, uh, Social Network, and right. Moneyball about Billy Bean. These are all Bay I Area. I was just going to say, yeah. <laughs> all Bay Area figures. What I was wondering of, if, if you could just address the notion, because I know people uh, often talk about these films and they try to tie them to reality and so forth, but they're films, they're stories, and you're a storyteller, you're getting an award as a storyteller. How much do you really provide in the way of license when you're creating characters like that, as opposed to all the really good assiduous research that you do? Um, you know, that's a, uh, it's a continuing conversation. Uh, uh, you're right. I, in addition to the three Bay Area people I've written about, I've, I've, I, uh, I've written some other nonfiction, Charlie Wilson's War, uh, Now Chicago 7, Molly's Game. Uh, <clears throat> the way I look at it is this. Um, I, it, it, it's not journalism. It's not a photograph. It's a painting. Uh, and that, uh, that doesn't give you permission to defame people, to pervert history. Um, but uh, basically people don't speak in dialogue. People's lives don't play out in a series of scenes uh, that form a narrative. That's something that writers do. Uh, and you have to, you have an inner compass uh, that you follow um, uh, of what you are willing to take license with. And if your inner compass isn't working, the studio's legal department will help you out there. Well, I must say, I, I just recently uh, saw the trial of the Chicago 7, and uh, I knew a number of those people and knew a few of them pretty well. Uh, and it's kind of fascinating. Uh, they, they've been through many different avatars, but it's fascinating to me the way you picture them because it does sort of follow... Uh, the continuity of the plot, and it follows creating characters who cast real shadows that may be very different than the actual characters who existed. Uh, let's talk about that movie because uh, it's it's current and a lot of people have really appreciated it. Uh, there's a story that goes back to, I believe, you're going to Steven Spielberg's home as the genesis of that? 15 years ago. Um, <clears throat> in 2006, I was asked to go to Steven's house on a Saturday morning. And uh, just to be clear, that's not common. I don't I don't hang out with Steven Spielberg. Uh, and he told me he wanted to make a movie about the Chicago 7, and I said, that sounds great, count me in. And I left his house and called my father and asked him who the Chicago 7 were. <laughs> uh, I, I was just saying yes to doing a movie with Steven Spielberg, the way literally anyone would. Uh, so I had a lot to learn. Yeah, I'm sorry. I was just thinking about, I don't know if you ever saw the movie The Muse with Albert Brooks, but he's going for a meeting with Spielberg. It turns out it's Stan Spielberg, Steven Spielberg's cousin that he's going yes. to. <laughs> That's a funny movie. Um, uh, there are a dozen or so uh, good books written about the Chicago 7, some of them written by the defendants themselves. There's a 21,000-page trial transcript. But most critically in the research part of this, was being able to spend time with Tom Hayden. Uh, Tom Hayden passed away a few years ago, but he was very much alive in 2006 when I started this. And uh, it was through Tom that I was able to get 
uh, a sense of the dramatic tension between Tom and Abby uh, that would become an important part of the movie. That, that wasn't available in any of the books of the transcript. Yeah, in fact, uh, Tom Hayden, of course, was a senator here in California, as I'm sure yeah. you're aware. I, I as a, just a viewer, and every you know, films are Rorschachs. Different people have different reactions to them. But I thought it was much more sympathetic to Abby Hoffman than to Tom Hayden until the end. Uh, that that's interesting. That uh, b battle between Tom and Abby, uh, two guys on the same side. Uh, who can't stand each other and each think the other is doing harm uh, to the cause, but in, in the end they grow to respect each other. That battle uh, turned out to be a reflection of the intramural battle we're seeing today on the left, between the left and the further left, between people who uh, want incremental change, work within the system, compromise, and and people who want uh, revolution. Uh, I... I don't, uh, I, I didn't find Tom unsympathetic at all uh, uh, throughout the piece. I uh, personally, not as the writer, uh, uh, sort of understand Tom better than I understand Abby. Uh, but uh, while we saw some of Abby's uh, outrageousness uh, and colorfulness, uh, I, I, I did want a, a slightly more tame Abby in the courtroom, uh, just because it's, it's hard to do a courtroom drama if it feels like one side doesn't care if it wins or loses. But back to your thought, is that, uh, uh, that, that argument between Tom and Abby, uh, that personal story uh, uh, really takes center stage in, in the third act. Well, it's, uh, the, the, the film is very prescient of the time we're in, as you were intimating, and uh, I found that really quite compelling about it. I mean, and when you see Bobby Seale brought into the picture and later on uh, bound and gagged, I don't want to give any spoilers here, you know, it really is haunting in the, what we're seeing now in the way of police abuse and the sort. Sure is. You know, uh, look, we, we thought that the film was, as I said, back in 2006, it started off just... Uh, being a good story to tell and a chance to work with uh, a director I, I, I admire. Um, I, but then uh, it, it, it slowly started to become more relevant uh, than I ever imagined it could be. Uh, from the beginning, I, I didn't want the film to be about 1968. I wanted it to be about today. I just never imagined how much about today it was going to be. We thought the film was plenty relevant last winter when we were making it. Um, uh, we didn't need it to get more relevant, but it did when, I think it was in May when George Floyd was killed, uh, and then Ahmed Arbery and Breonna Taylor, uh, and there were protests in the streets, and those protesters were being met with nightsticks and tear gas. Uh, and sometimes I'd watch CNN's coverage of what was going on in Portland and think, you know, if, if you just degraded the color on that a little bit, it would look exactly like the footage we used from 1968. Yeah. We're talking with Academy Award winning screenwriter Aaron Sorkin. His latest film is The Trial of the Chicago 7, which is now available on Netflix, and he's being honored at SF Film this week. Uh, you're actually, you, you mentioned directing, you directed this, and you also directed Molly's Game, and of course I'm certain you're asked this question so much that it may become um, 
tiresome in some ways, but I'm just wondering what you say when you're asked, would you rather write or would you rather direct, or which do you find more pleasure in and more satisfaction and fulfillment? I consider it all writing. Uh, I, I, when, when I write, uh, I, I'm hyper aware that I'm not writing something that's meant to be read. I'm writing something that's meant to be performed. Uh, and so these last two movies, Chicago 7 and Molly's Game, which I, neither of which did I know I was going to direct when I was writing it, uh, uh, it, it just becomes an extension of uh, what I was going for on the page. Now we're going to stand it up. I remember reading an interview where you said that you keep alive by writing, that writing is that vital to you, and many writers feel that way about how it's uh, something that, well, and I know you went through uh, a, a real battle with drugs and so forth. Yeah. And I, I think you discovered, didn't you, that uh, maybe like Raymond Carver discovered about writing fiction, that he was better not with the addiction than he was with the addiction, even though you're under the illusion sometimes that the addiction is what helps fuel you? You're certain. I was, uh, at least. And um, the, the, there's not a whole lot of difference from one drug addict to another. Uh, uh, it, it's actually one of the things that helps you recover is the discovery in, in meetings. If you're able to go to rehab, it's, it's the discovery that, uh, 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 addict behavior is, uh, incredibly predictable, um, uh, that, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in meetings with, uh, corn farmers from Nebraska, who the guy's telling the exact same stories I'm telling. Uh, anyway, uh, the big fear if you're a writer uh, uh, and you're using cocaine uh, is that you're not going to be able to write anymore without it. And uh, I, so about 25 years ago uh, now uh, that I got a call from someone I'd never met or spoken to in my life, Carrie Fisher. Uh, called me uh, at the request uh, of a friend to say, I know you think you're not going to be able to write without it, and I am here to promise you you're going to write better. And she was right. She gave you some pretty sage advice that certainly helped you a great she, deal. She sure did. Um, uh, in the end, it was a struggle that she uh, uh, herself lost, but, but she battled uh, fiercely for years. Uh, and I'm incredibly grateful for that phone call. But there's this uh, kind of romanticism to some extent about addiction and about drug use. Uh, I know Henner Thompson, this picture is in your office, and he, along with uh, the great playwrights, uh, Arthur Miller, George Bernard Shaw, and Tennessee Williams, are in the, that number of photographs uh, that says a lot about who has influenced you to a great deal. And you can read Hunter Thompson and some people read Hunter Thompson and said, isn't it great to just, you know, constantly sort of fuel yourself with drugs? Yeah, he's wrong. Uh, Hunter Thompson is. Um, uh, two, two of those uh, photographs that you mentioned, Tennessee uh, uh, was an alcoholic. You're right about the romanticism. Um, I, it's, you know, there are, there are a lot of things uh, that you feel like you can get away with uh, if you call yourself an artist. There, you, you feel like uh, you can get away with bad behavior because people will accept that from uh, an artistic person. 
um, and uh, uh, that drinking or using is, is simply the price of your, you know, creative mind. And it, it's, it's just not true. Um, uh, and even if it were true, it wouldn't be worth it. Uh, but it's not true. I have to ask you, since you're identifying yourself as an artist, and I think that's an apt way, you're, you're also a craftsperson, really, a craftsman. Uh, mm -hmm. But I'm reminded of something that Jack Warner once said, which you probably know, and I don't know if we can say on the air. He said, uh, the way uh, Hollywood scriptwriters and scriptwriters in general are regarded are as, it's an S word, a Yiddish word that I know you know, mm -hmm. uh, with typewriters. Um, and uh, to some extent, that's changed a whole lot. I mean, there, there is a kind of reverence now toward storytelling and toward the artistry that goes into script writing that never was a part of the old Hollywood. Uh, yeah, you know, um, even in uh, Mank, uh, David Fincher's uh, film, which has just come out, uh, uh, which I strongly recommend, it's a, it, it's a masterpiece. Uh, there are a couple of scenes in a, a writer's room at MGM, uh, and the writers that are in there, uh, Ben Hecht and S.J. Perlman, and um, uh, just a murderer's row of fantastic writers, like writing by committee uh, a horror movie. Um, I, so, yeah, there was a time uh, uh, when... Except for a few writers, uh, I think, uh, like Patty Chayefsky, uh, like Herman Mankiewicz and his brother, uh, uh, Joseph Mankiewicz, um, uh, when writers, I think, were considered just very replaceable. Um, uh, there was no difference from, uh, from one to the other. Uh, they, they weren't considered very valuable. Uh, <clears throat> but... Uh, I think that has changed to uh, to a large degree, um, uh, not just in film, by the way, but uh, maybe even especially television. In fact, uh, when you mentioned Patty Shevsky, I'm thinking about uh, Network and about Will McAvoy, uh, your character mm. who you gave a speech to that really your intention was to some extent to show that he was having a nervous breakdown but many people continue to parrot that speech and think of it as a speech that ought to be uh, recited almost um that that's i, I appreciate that it was you know it, it was a scene about a guy uh having a nervous breakdown um uh it's been interpreted as a number of other things as an anti-american screed as a misogynistic uh screed because it was aimed a lot of the person who asked the question was a young woman a college student um uh and what it was was uh a, a guy who had come to the end of his rope uh as a newscaster and who also uh was brokenhearted over his girlfriend um uh having left him a while back and he is actually hallucinating or perhaps not hallucinating that the girlfriend is in the audience and giving him instructions as a producer. And that we should say that that was from Newsroom, of course. Uh, which uh, I think, yeah, it's from the first 10 minutes of the Newsroom. He was described as kind of a pebble in your shoe, Newsroom, or did yeah. you say that also? He said um, you've used that metaphor a few times, but I, why Newsroom? It, uh, it's a show. Listen, I, I'm, I, I'm very proud of the show. Uh, and I love 
the people that I work with, uh, in particular, Jeff. Uh, uh, but it's a show I never quite got right. Uh, and the pebble in the shoe metaphor, I, just, I, I, uh, I always felt like I had a pebble in my shoe uh, while I was writing it. I could write a good scene here, a good scene there. I could not put uh, an episode together. Uh, and, uh, and it's a terrible feeling. You know, the, uh, I, I love series television. Uh, I'd like to do it again. I, I, I love working with the same group of people every week. I love putting on a show every week. But the, the really hard part of series television is that if you're writing a play or you're writing a movie and it's not going well, you've driven into a snowbank, you can call the producer, you can call the studio, you can call whoever is waiting for it and say, uh, listen, I, I know I said I was going to deliver at Christmas. It's, it's probably going to be more like March. Uh, and they may not be happy, but they'll, you know, they'll shrug their shoulders and say, okay, with television, you have hard deadlines. You have air dates. Uh, that you have to meet, which means that you have to write even when you're not writing well. Uh, uh, you can't put that script in a drawer uh, uh, and, and then take it out until you have a better idea. You have to write when you're not writing well, and then you have to take that script and put it on the table for the cast and crew for the table read, and then you have to point a camera at it uh, and and uh, and broadcast it, and uh, and that's a tough pill to swallow. So. Uh, that was the newsroom. Um, and, Aaron, hold uh, that thought because we're coming up on a break here. I want to get back to that and get back to uh, talking some more about your amazing career. Again, our guest is Academy Award-winning screenwriter Aaron Sorkin. His latest film is The Trial of the Chicago 7, and he's being honored by SF Film this week. I'm Michael Krasny. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking with the Academy Award-winning screenwriter Aaron Sorkin, also a director and a producer, and his latest film is The Trial of the Chicago 7. It's now available on Netflix, and he's being honored by SF Film this week. And before we had to go to that break, he was talking about Pebble in the Shoe and uh, describing very fluently and I think aptly about what you have to do and what is all the calculus of it. Uh, please finish what you were saying here. Sorry to interrupt. Well, then the only thing I was going to add was on top of everything else. I, I think I inadvertently uh, offended a group of people. I don't want to offend journalists um, because uh, I decided to set the show in the very recent past, uh, about a year and a half or two years in the past. The West Wing was a parallel universe. Uh, it, it was happening now, but not in a world we not in the same world we lived in uh the, uh the newsroom was happening in the same world we lived in but in the very recent past and i had said it in the very recent past because i didn't want to invent news uh i wanted it to be the world that we lived in so i didn't want suddenly for japan to invade uh again uh i, I wanted it to be the real world however by setting it in the recent past I think that there were people who thought that I was trying to show the pros how it should be done. 
by recreating certain uh, uh, important news events. Um, that, you know, here's how you should have covered uh, when we when SEAL Team Six got Bin Laden. Here's how you should have covered uh, uh, the oil well explosion in the Gulf, and so on. And that just simply wasn't on my mind while I was writing the show. Well, on your mind, usually, uh, if I can be so um, bold as to say this, uh, is drama. I mean, that's what you create, and drama is created, uh, as I think any good dramatist knows, by conflict. Uh, what about the, the seductive nature, though? You're a very political guy, and you wrote a letter at, when Trump was elected, that many people know, to your daughter, Roxy, uh, about what it meant to have Trump descend upon us. Uh, and yet uh, the reality is uh, there's a, well, I, I guess you could call it maybe a kind of a, a need sometimes to put in a, a bit of didacticism here and there, isn't there? Well, you uh, were 100% right when you said it, it's about the drama. Um, I'm, I, I, I write about politics from time to time because it's a, it's a great well of stories. Uh, and drama is conflict. Uh, we know that and the, the, the conflict, the friction I, I usually write about is uh, a conflict of ideas. Um, uh, and, uh, and you can find them in politics. And it also suits, I, I write in an idealistic, very romantic style, and, uh, uh, and it suits that. I'm not using these characters as a delivery system for what I think uh, at all, um, I'm I'm just uh, setting up protagonists, putting obstacles uh, in front of them. I uh, I understand what you mean by uh, by the didactic nature uh, that it can seem scolding uh, sometimes. It can seem didactic sometimes, uh, and uh, that's something I should get better at. Well, did you ever think of writing a novel? The reason I want to ask you that is I know William Goldman was a mentor to you and a very important figure in your life, and he wrote screenplays, but he also wrote novels. He, Bill Goldman uh, was an extreme, still is an extremely important figure in my life. He, he died a couple of years ago, but he remains an important figure in my life. Um, and I think that Bill would say that he also writes screenplays. Uh, I think that Bill would say that he's a novelist uh, who also writes screenplays. Uh, uh, he's just so well known as a screenwriter um, uh, uh, that, and and maybe best known for adapting his own novels, uh, which gives me a chance to say: if you've only seen The Princess Bride and never read The Princess Bride, read The Princess Bride. You're in for the treat of a lifetime. Um, I you asked me if I've ever thought of writing a novel. Uh, I haven't. I'm not sure if I'd be uh, much good at it. Uh, I, I don't have great powers of description, but uh, I love uh, what happens when you can collaborate with a group of, uh, of, of really great artists. I, I like team sports better than individual sports. I like bands better than solo acts. Uh, and I like doing plays, television and movies uh, better, I think, than I would writing a novel. You also, I think, have gone on record as saying that you like uh, and enjoy and uh, maybe even find yourself more attentive to films that are very downbeat, pessimistic, uh, that sort of thing, as opposed to the kind of things you write. Oh, well, I'm, I, I'm, uh, I, I, I love films 
that are optimistic. I uh, love films that, that put a lump in my throat. And I think that I try to write the kinds of films that, that I try to write the kinds of movies that made me want to write movies. Uh, but I, I, I think what you're referring to is I, I, I said that uh, I am a fan of all kinds of movies, in, including movies I don't know how to write. Uh, action films, thrillers, genre films. Um, uh, that as an audience member, I'm I'm fully down for them. Uh, I just as a writer don't know how to do it. Uh, you've been uh, described often in terms of your own filmmaking and film creation as being somewhat of a romantic and liking people to. Certainly, when I saw the trial uh, of the Chicago Seven, it did create a lump. You uh, your intention was. Uh, Born out with at least this viewer and probably um, no doubt many others, uh, it's that sense of uplift that you bring to the films. But it's not necessarily as a film goer. I guess I was getting at that kind of binary that you appreciate. It, it, it is as a film goer, yeah, uh, uh, that I appreciate it. Um, and I, uh, well, I, I was going to address the 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 uplift part of it but uh i'd probably just ruin it so <laughs> <laughs> well we don't want any spoilers uh, aaron uh, let me ask yeah, you no, about I'm something, not give yeah. uh, something else that i want to get to with you and that is before the election uh, it was a part of an interview you did for the san sebastian film festival you were asked how you'd write the end of this year's presidential race uh and um <laughs> maybe you can talk about that uh, and and yeah, particularly sure. in terms of how it compares to reality uh, yes, I was asked how I'd write the end of uh, uh, this year's presidential race, and referring to my, um, uh, you know, to how much I like idealism, romanticism, uh, optimism, I said that the way I'd write it is, uh, uh, you know, three Republican senators, three leaders in the Republican Party, they walk up to the White House, they say, Mr. President, it's time to go. Um, and that begins the healing process uh, for the country. And I'm told, and the reason I have to be told this is I actually don't have any social media accounts. It's really better for everyone. <laughs> uh, I don't have any social media accounts, but apparently what I had said uh, upset some people, uh, upset some people on my, my end of the uh, ideological spectrum uh, because it, I, I, I think if I'm understanding this right, uh, that people thought that it represented, uh, you know, a, a moderate's optimism that Republicans will do the right thing. Uh, I, 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 I think I'm getting this right. Um, and really all it represented was an offhand answer to a question, uh, to a hypothetical question, like how would you write the end of this election? It's not... It wasn't by any means how I thought the election was going to end. I thought the election was going to end exactly the way it's ending right now. Yeah, I'm afraid many of us did. And this is yeah. a president who the Republicans aren't going to talk to, at least at this point in time. Uh, uh, I suggest as, that he as, do the right thing. Yeah. As you and I are speaking, only a total of 27 Republicans That's right. in Congress, that the big Congress, Senate and uh, of the House, have will acknowledge that Joe Biden is the president-elect. 27 yeah. out of uh, about 250. Well, you were once asked about uh, 
Trump and you, uh, I was curious about your response, if you could amplify it somewhat. You said, I don't have any interest in him. He's just what he looks like. He's a really dumb guy with an observable psychiatric disorder. Yeah, uh, that is true. He is a really dumb guy with an observable psychiatric disorder. Uh, as a dramatist, though, he's worse than that. Uh, he, uh, my prediction is that, you know, screenwriters, playwrights, television writers are going to have a lot to write uh, about these last few years. But my prediction is that you will seldom see Trump. Trump will always be an off-screen character. Um, uh, you'll see him in news footage, but he won't be played by an actor. Uh, and he can't be written by a writer because he's just not plausible. Uh, it's any attempt to do it will really seem like Alec Baldwin uh, on SNL. Also, you can write protagonists and antagonists, heroes, antiheroes, straight up villains, but there's no such thing as an interesting character who doesn't have a conscience. Uh, if things aren't going to weigh on him, change him, uh, uh, there's, there can't be drama there. Well, in the trial of the Chicago 7, uh, Judge Julius Hoffman wasn't shown to have much of a conscience. And in fact, I believe you said you were maybe even kinder to him than you should have been, given the real character and the way he behaved. It, uh, yes, I, I, I'm not sure I was kinder to him. If, if you, you know, the, the, the real trial lasted five and a half months. I think if you'd seen five and a half months of Julius Hoffman. Um, well, I'm just saying you, th you thought he was worse than the way you portrayed him. Yeah. Um, uh, however, uh, there are moments in the trial um, uh, in the hands of Frank Langella, uh, who does a fantastic job, where you can see, for instance, when Michael, uh, don't want to give away too much, but when Michael Keaton is on the stand um, uh, and suddenly uh, there's a decision that Frank Langella, that Julius Hoffman, the judge, has to make. Um, but he's suddenly nervous now because Michael Keaton is playing the former attorney general. Um, and so you do see him in a bind. You do see him after what happens to Bobby. Uh, he knows he's screwed up. Uh, uh, he can tell. And he, he's kind of scared himself. He went too far. Uh, so there are moments like that. Things do weigh on him. Again, our guest is Aaron Sorkin. His latest film is A Trial of the Chicago 7. I want to talk with you, just have a little bit of time left here, uh, and I wanted to get into, well, what made Aaron Sorkin, uh, what helped, you know, in terms of uh, establishing your identity and who you are, and uh, it, it all begins in Scarsdale with a pretty privileged background, I, I believe. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. But let's take it from there. You wanted to be an actor, I think, didn't you, originally? I did. I did. I grew up in Scarsdale. It's a suburb of uh, of New York City. Uh, first eight years of my life were in Manhattan, but uh, uh, then my family moved out to the suburbs. Um, I, it was a you know it was a white upper middle class uh, a childhood. Um, I had two wonderful parents. Uh, I, I, I was a happy kid. It's not a great recipe for good American writing, but, or for art, uh, for becoming uh, an artist. I, I was, yeah. yeah, I remember, you know, wishing that there, I had some kind of problem in my childhood. <laughs> um, then, as you get older, you discover, wait, maybe you did. <laughs> but 
Um, uh, I did want to be an actor. That's all I wanted to be. Uh, uh, my parents had started taking me to see plays uh, starting from when I was very little. I was just struck by it, thunderstruck by it. Um, so uh, I, I always wanted to go see plays. I always wanted to read plays and all the school plays I was starring in, uh, community theater in the summers. Uh, and then I went to Syracuse University, which has a very good theater department, uh, to study not just acting, but musical theater, uh, actually. Uh, I, I was singing and dancing, too. Uh, and by the time I graduated uh, college, I had never, not once, written for pleasure. I had never written for any reason other than a chore to be gotten through for a school assignment. Um, but uh, I came to New York and just on this one crazy night, I, I, I was uh, sharing a tiny, tiny studio apartment with uh, a young, with a woman who had once been my girlfriend and, and now she was a friend, but everybody was out of town for the weekend and I had my friends grandfather's semi-automatic typewriter, uh, which is electric keys and a manual return. Uh, and it was a Friday night and I didn't have $3 in my pocket and the TV in the apartment wasn't working and the stereo in the apartment wasn't working. And I don't know, everybody I knew was, had been invited to a party I hadn't been invited to. Nobody was around. Uh, and the only thing there was to do for entertainment was to stick a piece of paper in this typewriter. And for the first time I started writing dialogue. Uh, and I started writing for fun and uh, I stayed up all that night and I feel like that night has never ended. Now, you uh, certainly became known for your dialogue. Uh, it's been described as percussive. Uh, I think that's one of the, one of the descriptions I like best. Uh, it's, I, uh, I'm not sure if it was meant as a compliment, but I, I, I take it as one. It, um, when my parents were taking me to see plays, uh, starting from when I was very little, uh, lots of times they were plays I couldn't, I was too young to understand, uh, like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf when I was nine years old. Uh, but I loved the sound of dialogue. It sounded like music to me. Uh, and I wanted to imitate that sound. So what a line sounds like is as important to me as what it means. And um, uh, part of, uh, uh, you know, this new thing in my life, directing, and to be clear, I'm not done wanting to work with great directors. This, this isn't a permanent uh, a career move that I've made, uh, but it is something I enjoy. Uh, I do have to now, as a director, admit that there is some kind of visual component to cinema um, uh, and that I can't just be listening to it. I have to <laughs> compose a frame. Visual component, in fact... Uh... <laughs> So a personal note, I remember taking a script writing course uh, when I was working on my PhD at University of Wisconsin from a TV writer named Jerry McNeely, and I found the most difficult thing was to visualize because like you, I was pretty much anchored in, in dramaturgy and playwriting. And uh, yeah. you mentioned Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. That's kind of like dialogue out of a battering ram in many ways. Uh, it's it, interesting that that should be a seminal effect on you. Um, it, the, it, it, and, it's, and, it, and it was. Um, uh, so much so that uh, my uh, our local library, uh, uh, you know, it had just a, a small collection of, of record albums, uh, of vinyl albums, um, including a, a very small uh, selection of original cast albums from Broadway musicals. But they had the an album. It was a double album 
of the original cast of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf doing that. And so I checked that out of the library and then just paid late fees every week um, uh, and, and would just play it all the time. Again, having no idea what these four people were talking about, what George and Martha were arguing about, uh, nothing except the sound of the dialogue, um, was, whether it was percussive or whether it was an aria or a duet or a trio, it, uh, it, it was music to me. And like I said, I wanted to imitate that sound. Um, and uh, it served me well on the one hand. On the other hand, my Achilles heel is story because I didn't understand what was going on. Well, that's the Achilles heel with a pebble or two, but uh, you have become a major composer of a kind of music of dialogue, and uh, your career speaks for itself. It's an extraordinary career. Congratulations on the award, and good luck to you, and it's really been a pleasure talking to you. It's been my pleasure. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. That's Aaron Sorkin. His latest film is The Trial of the Chicago 7, now available on Netflix, and he's being honored by SF Film this week. For all of us here at KQED Public Radio, I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them, with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.